Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight, we have Troy Goodfellow. Troy, as always, thanks for coming back. Always happy to be back home. And returning to the show, we have Broken Toys blogger Scott Lum the Mad Jennings. Scott, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yay, Lum. Yay. So, the reason Scott's here... Um, is because I get the I get the distinct impression from the War in the East show that Scott may be smarter than the average bear when it comes to uh, early Red Army history and the early Soviet period, uh, and that's fitting because tonight we're going to be talking about Revolution Under Siege, a new war game about the a relatively new war game about the Russian Civil War and the wars resulting from the breakup of the Russian Empire uh, from developer Sep Reds. I kind of want to start with you guys because this is this struck me as it's an unusual topic for a war game and I. You know, right off the bat, I wanted to get your impressions of this this latest game. Um, I'm going to start with just what you just said that it's an unusual uh, subject for a war game because it is such a scattered war and such an unusual war. You have uh, a new government fighting for legitimacy and survival, uh, which has only a dubious control over the, over the mechanism of production. You have potential of Western intervention. You have a war against the Poles in the West. You have czarist armies popping up here and there and trying to do what they can. It's really not a neat and tidy war uh, for a war game because you have all this great political stuff going on as well uh, as the military action. So when I got the email last fall saying, hey, we've just done this game in the Russian Revolution, I was like, really? And I control armies in it. And they don't have to be Lenin or Trotsky. I'm like Lenin and Trotsky controlling armies. How does this exactly work? Uh, so it was actually quite a novel idea, and I'm one of the people who loves having new settings for war games. So even just seeing that was a bit, kind of tickled me a little bit. Yeah, I mean, as uh, Rob mentioned, I mean, uh, everyone needs a hobby, and mine is uh, early Russian history. Uh, okay, it's a strange hobby, but still. And when they announced Revolution Under Siege, I mean, it was, oh, they decided to make a game just for me. I may be the only one who plays this, but I'm okay with it. They'll make it for me, whatever. I was very excited about, you know, the fact that they were just willing to actually cover this part of history because, it, for one thing, it's like the trivia questions nightmare in terms of history. It's like, <laughs> you just to anyone and say, hey, can you tell me when the United States invaded Russia? And most people would look at you and go, huh, what? <laughs> and, then, and then you explain to them that, you know, no, actually, the U.S. intervened in the Russian Civil War and sent a small contingent of troops to Vladivostok who consequently wandered around Siberia in a confused daze. And then they look at you like you're just making things up, and that really actually happened. I mean, the entire Russian Civil War is a story of just an incredible backdrop of just things that you wouldn't have expected to happen in history one right after the other. I mean, essentially, you have a failed state succeeding a failed state. Okay, right. Russia collapsed in the wake of World War One. And couldn't uh, couldn't fight couldn't uh, maintain a war effort at all. Their army literally melted and went home. And at that point, the Russian uh, the Russian Republic collapsed. The uh, Soviet the Soviet uh, Republic took over, and they were by any modern definition completely a failed state. They could not feed their people. They could not maintain an army. You know, the core of the Red Army for the first year of the Russian Civil War was one brigade of Latvian troops. That was it. That was what they sent around every uh, front trying to stabilize, you know, the revolts that were breaking out. And it's just fascinating in terms of, you know, the, 
in the wake of World War One, where he had you know millions of troops just staring at each other, you know, walking into slaughter for years, and then you immediately go into this war, which was fought by a few thousand people, you know, uh, racing down train lines to try to meet, you know, what few people were fighting, you know, in the early stages. It was just, it's an incredibly interesting uh, his period in history that hasn't been covered at all in gaming or, you know, and uh, to, see, to see someone actually trying to tackle that is very, very promising. Now, as far as the actual game, uh, I'll confess, I have not delved that much into it because it was my first attempt at the uh, AJOD system, uh, however that's pronounced. And it really, I found it very impenetrable. I mean, maybe I should have started with, you know, one of their earlier games in the series, a civil, one of their Civil War games or whatnot. But I stepped through the tutorial, I played a, a few turns of the uh, first Civil War scenario, and I just felt like I was having everything thrown at me with almost no explanation whatsoever. I mean, it's, I couldn't tell when I was getting reinforcements. I couldn't tell... You know, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't grok how the economy was supposed to work, how I could build, you know, new units, even if I could build new units. And I just, I could not get a handle on the game system at all. Which was really disappointing because, as you've just heard me gush for, like, the past ten minutes, this is essentially a game that was written for me. This is a game you want and to play. It, I couldn't get, I couldn't get into it. Yeah, the Ajot system is one of those things you either get uh, like, quickly or you don't, I think. Um, I mean, yeah, Birth of America, I, I mean, I've played pretty much all of them. Um, did play a lot of Rise of Prussia, and sadly not a lot of this uh, either, uh, as my life melted down. But it was um, the Ajot system, this one has some interesting twists on the Ajot system, because there actually is, you know, there's a production thing. And you know, the Civil War game had a production mechanic where you could build units, and so does this one. But most Ajod games really don't. The Napoleonic game didn't. And this isn't an Ajod game, but it's based on the Ajod system. So to make that, as be very clear, it's an Ajod system base. It's a, same type of movement, uh, same type of hands-off combat, same length of turns, same command and control system. So it is an Ajod system, but not an Ajod game. Um, so it says all these. So it's kind of an interesting twist on the system, but it kind of adds some stuff you didn't have in the simpler games, like uh, Birth of America, which I still think is you know one of the great glorious standards uh, in recent war game history. Um, so yeah, I can understand why you know this if this is your introduction to the Ajod system, why you would have a bit of resistance to trying to figure it out because it's not immediately intuitive. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely lean really heavily on. Kind of the primer I got in the series with um, all the way back with Birth of America, and I've kind of been intermittently involved in the series since then. Uh, and I did play Rise of Prussia, and I think for me, you know, that's de- that was definitely the big um, jump in learning curve because in Birth of America you don't really have to sweat things like production or national decisions, um, but in Rise of Prussia suddenly you have to be you know cranking out units to feed into the war you have you know you have to be uh finding a way to drum up new generals so a lot of the stuff i see in um revolution under siege i saw relatively recently the one issue i kind of well there's a lot of issues i have with the with the um age engine and, and i'm sure we'll, we'll get to them as we as we discuss this topic more but one one of the things you know that, that gives me pause is i feel like every time the you know, this this engine t- tackles a larger subject. Its grasp on it gets a little shakier. Its ability mm-hmm. to communicate vital information to the player gets clumsier. Uh, and, you know, this gives... I mean, frankly, it makes me really worried for um, uh, Pride of Nations. 
Uh, well, that's... To, be fair, to be fair, as as uh, as I tried to touch on, I mean, the Russian Civil War is pro- politically, if nothing else, one of the most complex conflicts ever fought. I mean, there were so many factions that cross purposes with one another. I mean, this is something that any game system would have difficulty dealing with, just from a macro strategic level of. How do I have, you know, four or five different white factions all supposedly on the same side working across purposes? I got the impression that the way the the revolution under siege handles it is it just you control whatever units you have control over and then the AI just, you know, does what it does its thing with the uh, factions that you're not uh, controlling, which is kind of historically accurate in terms of, you know, Denikin and Kolchak weren't exactly on speaking terms. But at the same time, from a game perspective, you feel like you're just, you're, you're far down on the command hierarchy going, why am, how much influence do I have over all this? This is something they tried to do a little bit in Rise of Prussia, as I can, as I understand, Rob, where they had, you know, the uh, alliance uh, wasn't exactly working hand in hand. Coalition, right? Um, that Ajod tried to do just to keep. But again, this is not an Ajod game, but to keep reminding people of that. But the idea that you have that there are people at the same side, but they're not coordinated. Um, and we've seen this in other war games, and other strategy games, where you know, the Axis and Allies type stuff, uh, where you know the Soviets are your allies, but they're kind of not. Uh, you got to work with them, and you can use their land, but you really can't, you know, tell them what to do. So this is not really completely totally new territory but for a war game to you know divided sides uh isn't something we've seen really a lot of until really the age odd system and it was i really liked how they implemented it here i liked how they had you know the whites uh fractured and how each white faction had kind of its own agenda going on um and the commies had to deal with it Um, and from a historical perspective that's absolutely accurate absolutely from a a gaming perspective i can see where that would be Fairly frustrating. Well, and see, I actually, I mean, this is this is that's a brand of frustration I actually have high tolerance for, um, mm-hmm. because I mean, one of the th- one of the things I one of the things I find most interesting is, you know, I just I just got through not that long ago playing like War in the East, right, where, you know, commanding commanding. Pardon? <laughs> you finished oh, it? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I I got I got through with it. We'll just say that. Um, <laughs> And I'm waiting on Bruce Garrick to uh, send send me a long long overdue turn, Bruce. Uh, but so you're commanding the Wehrmacht, and I mean this is I mean you know in a lot of ways this is, this is what an army should be, right? The 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 chain of command is strong, you know, the, all the all the pieces fit together, and it just kind of works. It's a, it's a tool for executing plans. And what's really cool in Revolution Under Siege is you really have none of those tools at your disposal. Um, what what you're trying to do is you're trying to fight this spread to hell and gone war at the same time as you're trying to cobble together something resembling a functional army and a functioning supply chain in order to help you win this war. But you're really you're really starting from scratch and you have to be using these crummy tools um, even as you're trying to develop them. Uh, and, and then I, I I kind of feel like in many places you know one of the great challenges you face is events are often still moving faster than the armies. Mm-hmm. And again, I mean that's historically accurate. I mean, re- I mean, refer back to, you know, the the whole, you know, the Latvians carrying the water for the Bolsheviks, the first six, you know, six to eight months of the Civil War. I mean, 
you you have the army of Latvia defending the Soviet Union. What does that tell you? <laughs> you know this this is a, this is this is a war which was not fought by armies. It was fought by vaguely organized gangs, at least for the first year or so. Right. And you know, in terms of you know having a handle of, I don't have complete. You know, uh, I don't have complete uh, command overview over what's going on and control of what's happening. That is, that's, it's what happened. I mean, that's accurate. It's, well, it's, it's gutsy for a game to actually try for that. One of the great things about this game that I, I like, at least is the setting uh, and the way they try to capture it, is the whole idea that these are not just failed states, as Scott said. These are, you know, s states that want to reconstitute. There's states. The communist state is a state being born. You have to build your army. It's kind of like uh, a game of civilization, only you're jumping well ahead and you're outmanned because uh, you have to build all your troops because you have nothing. You know the cities they don't respond to you. You really have to protect your railroads uh, because some Cossack's going to come and rip them up uh, if you don't pay a lot of attention. You are starting pretty much from scratch and hoping for the best and hoping you can last. Uh, it's a great challenge to play the Reds and to play the Whites for their own reasons. Uh, but you have this idea of an, of an army being born. There's a lot of delay in this game. This is a game of delayed gratification. How long can you survive? Uh, can you keep the revolution moving and going forward? Because you need victories to do that. Um, you have no good, no good generals. You have no good troops except the Latvian mercenaries. And you know, once Latvia declares independence, they'll probably all go home or something, I don't know. I really like how this captures so much of the uncertainty and how tenuous uh, the Russian Revolution is. I mean, this is one of the big problems of history, and something I've written about and talked about before, is that we often see history as, you know, this inevitable march of events. Now, of course a communist revolution was going to happen, because there were all the socialists going on, the Tsar was a loser, and there was all this agitation, and yet a brilliant mind like Lenin behind it, the end. But it was just so tenuous, uh, and I think games that capture that as well as Revolution Under Siege does, I think it really captures the just how weak uh, the communist government was, how it could have gone another way, um, and puts you in the seat of Lenin and Trotsky and the others in building a fighting force. I really love how it does that, uh, which is uh, generally not a big fan of the AJOD production systems and how they try to do it, how they try to capture. I think they're better as war games than they are as strategy games. Uh, but this system from SpecRev, um, SepRed? SepReds. SepReds. I think they've done a very good job of it. I'm actually quite pleased with what I've seen of it. Now, Rob, you've played more than any of us. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm doing the review for uh, PC Gamer. And honestly, what you're describing makes me want to pick it back up and give it another try. I mean, I did not get that level of, you know, the, what what I had uh, managed to penetrate my way through mm -hmm. was almost purely the war game aspects. And trying to model the Russian Civil War as a war game simply won't work because it was more than anything else a political conflict, as you describe. I mean, it was, you know, the the uh, the Soviet state being born and a uh, bunch of very argumentative. Uh, argumentative factions trying uh, in all their own ways to strangle it in the crib. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 and it, just it, pushing war game counters around the map is not going to communicate that. Yeah, see, I, maybe I have a better imagination than you do. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, I, I look at the war game and I say, you know, what does this represent? Why am I building these troops? 
why can I build them in some places and not others? Um, I just don't submit, basically I'm not making the political decision. Um, you know, send Trotsky to uh, Leningrad, boost communist morale plus 50, and then I get some magic troops to appear. That's not how it works. But the movement of generals and who you promote and getting your command structure organized and setting your priorities, its you really do get this feeling that you are starting from scratch and you are trying to keep the revolution going. Now, I've always liked a little bit of role-playing in my war games, so maybe I just a uh, better commie than you are. Uh, so that's... <laughs> I'm almost certainly am. I'm, I'm a Canadian. <laughs> uh, so there we have it. I, so I, I'm not saying you should go into this and expect some grand political narrative uh, in the game, because it is a war game, and mm. there's no doubt about that. It is a war game with some production, um, some events you have to respond to, and some you just can't respond to, and uh, a lot of pushing counters around. But it's where you push the counters, and what the counters mean. Uh, it's a problem of representation in war games. You know, what do the units actually mean? Um, I think this is a very this is a better job than many other war games, in my mind, of making that you know mental leap from the board uh, to the political reality because you can see the army because you do have to build the army. It's not like the uh, they're not like a civil war game where you know the Confederates start with a whole lot of good good generals and some good troops and you just have to stay alive long enough. Uh, you really have nothing, but nobody has anything. Uh, so it's all a matter of setting your priorities and deciding where the challenge is going to be. And I, I think uh, Revolutionary Siege captures that better than many other war games do. Does that make sense to you, Rob, or am I just an idiot? No, I, I, you know, I'm totally on board with that. You know, I mean, I think if you, if you go in wanting to sort of like be in charge of guiding the revolution or guiding the, you know, white counter-revolution... You know, yeah, you're going to be disappointed. It's it, that's not what this is about. It is a war game, but you are sort of put in the position of being, you know, the army guy who is responsible for cleaning up the messes left by the politics of the time. See, that's where I that's where I get disappointed because this would make this period would make an extremely compelling political game. Yeah. You know. Being the one who's making the messes, being the one who's having to, you know, respond to the messes, you know, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, being, being head of the Red Army, you know, being Trotsky during this time, it's challenging, but it's also cleaning up after a whole lot of other people's messes. I mean, one of the uh, one of the things that the uh, Soviets did the first year they were in, the first year they existed was to uh, try to outlaw money. They, they tried to outlaw money because, well, they were true believers in the communist revolution, and true communism uh, meant that everyone just donated their labor to the cause without any need for, you know, raw capitalist economy, you know, economic uh, distinctions like, wealth money. Uh, this had about the effect that you would expect in that everyone used money anyway, and the more that the Russians tried to get away from it, the more it inflated, and the more their economy nosedived into the toilet. That's... Not something you can really represent in a war game other than just, oh, I suddenly have, you know, 50% less production points this turn or whatever. But the ability to respond to, you know, uh, very dramatic events like this is what makes a really compelling game. Right, but there isn't the problem there that no player is going to outlaw money. 
And if you force it on the player, that then the player isn't actually taking well, control of the revolution. Well, this, game, is, right? this is the problem of grand strategy, right? Where if you give the right. player just enough control, they're no longer playing the historical scenario at all because right. they're smarter than that. But then to but then to take it, you know, to historical, you know, to, to its historical precedent. I mean, Lenin did not want to outlaw money. It was his overzealous economic planners that just got it in their head that you know, hey, we we're planning this economy. It doesn't. We don't actually need rubles, and they had to deal with it. And how you deal with that, I think, can be can give you some interesting choices. That's a political decision. That's a political consequence, and that's not something that workings generally traditionally do very well. The best they can do is you know a an event screen that pops up. Hi, you don't have money anymore. Sorry, you know that kind of thing. And Sorry. that does get frustrating because you you did have no control over it. It's just okay. On turn twenty two, the game screwed me. That's true. I think you know. I think one of the things they do. I, I, I'm not. I'm not really good on the on the time frame of this. So about when did the um, is, is did the money experiment sort of re- cause the uh, sort of the counter revolt that broke out in the uh, north in like 1918, 1919? It was all just, you know, the 1918 and 1919 was just all one massive series of chaotic events. I mean, the, 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 the Soviet Republic was, it took a while before they had adults in charge, put it that way. Right, so, so where I'm at in, in uh, one, of my, one of my grand campaigns, um, you know, I'm, I'm playing as the Soviets, but I like to think I'm, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm playing as Trotsky to some extent. But so, so you've, got, you've got white armies coming in from... You know the the Russian interior from the east, but then you've also got major problems down around uh, what is it, Novgorod? Mm-hmm. Um, you, so you got the, you got the southern whites as well, and they're and they're gathering strength. So on turn one, you think, okay, I've got to sort of wall off these you know routes to the east, and then I've got to gather an army together and go crush what's happening down in the south. Got to got to turn them back uh, and sort of recapture the Don River. And you know, no sooner have you just started like to assemble a force to do that, then suddenly there's massive revolts um, in the cities around Moscow. Yeah, actually what caused that was that the, uh, the, uh, there was a massive famine all throughout that time period because the state simply couldn't feed the people. And any food that was being grown was being kept out in the farms because, you know, massive chaos. Nobody wanted to take risk of losing seed grain for the winter, etc., so there was very real risk of starvation in all the cities, and they reacted to starvation about as well as you can expect during a revolution. Right. So I mean, so you're sitting there, you're trying to you're trying to build these units, and you know suddenly this this brand new army that's being sort of, you know, you're you're concentrating the army at industrial centers, right? So you've got a regiment here, a regiment there, an artillery battery here, and they're all coming up, and then before they're even ready to go. Suddenly, the, the the entire region is wrecked by revolts, and now you get these scattered little like red detachments, uh, sort of beset by, you know, armed mobs basically. Right. And so suddenly, you know, now now you can't even you can't even you know dream of dealing with the southern the southern whites or these troops coming in from the east because now you've basically got to retake the river valley around around Moscow. Uh, that you know you got to you got to take those you got to retake that you've got to retake that region, and so the you know now you're you're trying to you know stamp out these revolts and reassemble your army, and while that's happening, the whites are picking up momentum on every front. You know I I, I think that's that's kind of the pace of this game where okay I'm not I'm not controlling the events of this revolution, 
But right. what I am dealing with is the mind-boggling blowback from these decisions. Um, another cool little feature is, um, so some of your cheapest troops are going to be the Red Brigades, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the, the, was it the Red, the Red Guards or the Red Brigades? Red Guards. Red Guards. Uh, so, so yeah, you've got these, you got the Red Guards, you can deploy them in heavy numbers. Uh, there's just, you know, one problem with them is that wherever they go, they piss people off. So your, your, you know, most accessible, you know, troops for putting down a revolt are also the guys who are most likely to leave massive discontent, disloyalty in your wake. Um, you know, and will probably sow the seeds for the next revolt. So you got to figure out, you know, when do you want to use these guys? They're, you know, they're, they're wild, they're they're mad dogs. You keep on a leash. Like, when are you going to turn these guys loose? Because once you do, you can kiss that region goodbye. You know, the only way you're going to keep it under control at that point is outright repression. Right. Um, so I mean, it's you know, it's decisions like this where there's, I I, I like I like a war game like this where I'm always dealing with you know the least awful option. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 a different you know I'd say it's a it's a change of pace from you know well you know how shall how shall I you know try attempt my double you know my double encirclement no 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 we're not thinking in those terms for this game it's you know how do you, how do you how do you keep this you know crummy state together for one more turn uh, when your best generals are buried under several layers of command and right now you've got these old czarist holdovers or these crappy party functionaries who, for whatever reason, you're forced to put them in charge of armies that they have no business commanding. And meanwhile, Tukhachevsky is hanging out in Moscow waiting for a brigade command. Right. You know, that's kind of my pitch to you, Scott. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, we, 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 we've got to get you over that, over that curve with this engine because, I, you know, I think, if, I think if you were to stick with it, you know, I mean, the, the, there's enough flavor I here. Really did. I did not give it a fair chance. I mean, it's, I, I looked at it, I played around with it for a few days and I just had the ah, reaction and then I that was the shelf moment. I put it back on the shelf and I haven't looked at it since because I've had other things to do. Uh, you know, and hearing you two guys talk about it actually makes me want to take another look at it just because I feel like, you know, it does it if I stick with it, it's addressed some of the problems that I've had with it. A well, lot of it is just like I said, my unfam- total unfamiliarity with the system. Well, yeah. I think I think we should get into that engine and, and why it's such a turnoff. Because I because I know I know a lot of war gamers who this is very divisive. There are people who oh this is an yeah. this is an Ajod game. I'm buying day one purchase. Yeah. Uh, and then I know a lot of guys who simply will not take who will not touch the system. Uh, and I mean, you know, Troy, what do you think? You know, it comes for the dichotomy. I guess I mean part of it is there are a lot of things that go on with the Ajod system. Part of it I think is people are resistant to the way turns are done. <laughs> as basic as that sounds, because okay, turn, so it's a, it's a we go two week system, right? Yeah, it's we go and it's two weeks, and anything can happen in those two weeks. You don't have any control of your troops over that period. Um, it's very so. If you're really interested in the you know the fine tuning of a battle and making sure your lines are all set up and your troops are in the right place, instead of just moving big clumps of troops around, this is moving big. This is kind of like Shogun One, really. Mm-hmm. It's you're moving big clumps of troops. You're moving stacks. You're not moving units. You're not moving hexes. You're moving stacks of units around. And you can mix and match them and get your command system all set up, but you're moving stacks, uh, which a lot of, you know, your traditional hex-based war gamers, which is still, you know, the big core group here, are going to say this isn't really a war game. It's, you know, it's kind of like risk. You just take a big clump of troops, you move them along the board. 
Um, it's not quite that simple, but you can see uh, how it could be characterized as such. And the two-week turns, you know, you can't do anything in those two weeks. Um, but, you know, anything can happen in two weeks. Well, yes, but this is the way the turns are structured. So people don't like that. Um, on the other side, uh, for pe people who like lighter games, this has, should be kind of appealing, except for the whole command control thing, uh, which will turn some people off. How you really do have to pay attention to who is in charge where. You can't just do like, you know, you could do in like early Hearts of Iron, find your best general and put him on top and he's a lieutenant, I don't care. <laughs> give him give him a great big army, he's a lieutenant, right. he's got great skills. He'll get promoted eventually. Uh, you can't do that. Uh, and you have to pay attention to who is doing what where. Uh, and supply lines and weather. It's actually quite a sophisticated system, but they're kind of, but it, it's so different from other war game systems and other strategy game systems, that there will be detractors. Now, I like how different it is. Um, Breath of America was a breath of fresh air to me, uh, both in how it looked, uh, with its how it used the map and how it used colors and how the portrait art on the stands was outstanding and has just gotten better as the series has moved on. And Sep Red has kept that up with excellent portrait art, excellent unit art, excellent map art. Uh, they deserve great credit for pushing the system, for keeping those parts of the system as they push it in other directions. Um, so I'm a sucker for the Age of Games. Um, I, I haven't tried Rise of Prussia in enough detail yet, uh, but the whole war game model, but you mentioned Pride of Nations, Pride of Nations is a grand strategy game, has like really nothing to do with the other Age of Games, uh, except the games coming from Age of. Uh, this system is... I'm not going to say it's a great introductory system. Not now. It's not as I mean, Scott's no dummy. Uh, so if he can't, you know, just quickly figure it out, and there's something going on with the tutorial or something going on uh, with the explanations, the documentation, or the UI. Uh, the UI has always been an issue um, in these games. Yeah, and I, I think you know maybe that's one of my big frustrations. You know, in, in any interface, there's got to be this balance between communicating information visually as opposed to textually. And I kind of feel like in age-odd games, it's just, there's just too much, I mean, text is way too important. There's there's not enough, you know, like, there's not enough visual weight given to powerful armies or important locations. Yeah. So you've got to sort of scrutinize the map, your army stacks, to figure out what's going on. Because on the map, you know, a, a mighty host... Uh, will carry about the same visual impression as you know a single company of troops, garrison troops wandering around a village. Like they, you know, they look pretty much identical. So you, you know, just little things like that that you should be able to tell at a glance. Yeah. Age odd games, you kind of got to do the uh, hover, read all the tooltip information that comes up, and then you know, and then move from there. Which means you do you end up doing sort of a lot of every turn, sort of reassembling the. Uh, tactical situation in your head which is it, it can be it can be very frustrating and that's one thing that you know as, as i said in my review i was impressed by how many new and cool things are going on in this game i kind of feel like the games are growing but the presentation isn't the interface isn't and yeah. at some point you gotta you gotta put those two things together now you know you, you said that uh pride of nations isn't isn't really a game in this vein. I, I don't know, Troy. I mean, we, we both saw it at the uh, Paradox thing. Mm -hmm. it, it looks an awful lot like every other, every age of game, uh, except, you know, huge. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be quite different because the strategic layer is so much deeper. Um, 
and so much more important than the war game. All their other games have been war games, really. Even their Civil War game was a war game. I mean, this is a strategy. Uh, Pride of Nations is a strategy game. Um, it'll have war in it, but the politics of the economy are so much more important. Um, I'm not quite sure. It's, you can really comp- I think visually it's akin to an Ajog game, uh, but there are so many more menus. <laughs> For good or for ill. Uh, I think uh, we got a box quote, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so many more menus. <laughs> I get what you're saying. Some of the things that uh, Philippe uh, Thibault uh, was telling me, you know, sounded very exciting about the game. Looking at it, I thought, ah, I've seen this before. So it remains to be seen. I, I would bet you money it's it's more more like the other Ajud games than than you think it than you think it's going to be. We'll, uh, we'll see uh, very soon. Absolutely, look forward to it. But um, so, can we ask who are these separate people? Well, here's here's the thing. Um, you know, as as we say that the, you know, at the at the Paradox event in New York, I was talking to Philippe, and he explained to me that actually a lot of the assets, a lot of the historical research, uh, basically a lot of the the background information and the assets that go into Ajad games, uh, is often sort of contributed on a volunteer basis uh, by forum members. They've got a really active community, a really supportive community uh, that does, you know, oh, a fair bit of heavy lifting. Oh, Scott. I'm sure it was you, wasn't it? Uh, no, no. There, there, there are probably five other people with this obsession. And <laughs> sounds like they made the game. <laughs> it, from what I've been able to glean from the uh, developer's website is they all say that the, the, this is a team that has worked on age games before. That to me suggests this is you know, so, somewhere between a fan project and a, you know, contributing developer project. You know, it's it, it, it it's a game that sort of bridges that divide between, like, Ajod's Paradox France. Um, well, Paradox and, has been doing that, too. I mean, they've been farming their uh, Hearts of Iron 2 engine out to uh, various mod teams, yeah. having them, you know, uh, come up with new versions of Hearts of Iron 2 based on it and selling them. Yeah, and they have uh, Magnamundi, which is on their EU3 uh, mm-hmm. engine. And that's going to be coming out, uh, I think, in the fall. Which I thought looked, I mean, looked pretty damn cool. Like, I mean, I'm not sure it's going to work, but it definitely addressed some things that have always sort of rankled uh, with me with EU3. They're, yeah, they're the the, uh, Paradox uh, EU mod community is a... uh, it's it's a dark hive of scum and villainy, uh, <laughs> and the Magnum Mundi team especially is there's a whole lot of drama there, and I suspect that a lot of that will actually carry over into the game's release. Uh, so if it's anything like the history of the mod itself has been for EU3, you'll see a lot of very interesting decisions, and then a lot of very punishing decisions that basically do things like, well, we think your nation is too powerful now, we're going to take you down a size. Oh, it, it, it tries to redirect you onto the historical track maybe a little too strongly? Not so much historical track, just... Just beats the shit out of you? Yeah, pretty they, much. <laughs> they, they don't want any snowballing, is what it comes down to. Yeah. And, they, and they will punish your snowballing. Ah, uh, so historical blue shells. More or less. Yes, got a Mario Kart reference onto the show. Excellent. Um, <laughs> Last one. <laughs> now we have, now we have to have, 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 have the, the Pokemon show. Oh, God. Burn it, I'll try. Um, <laughs> it's a strategy game. Just ask Tom. <laughs> but, uh, so, so anyway, so so that I think is the background for the for this project. It's one of those things that 
you know, I'm not sure you could ever get the company proper interested in, right. but there, it just had enough. Uh, I, get, I get the impression that it had enough uh, fan, you know, fan momentum behind it, and these I mean, people knew see, enough yeah, to make the game. I could see that being really the best way to launch something like this. I mean, you know, trying trying to pinch a large publisher with, hey guys, give me a ten million dollar budget to make a game on the Russian Civil War. Yeah, and, and to an extent, I mean, you know, this this is a game that feels like it was sort of freed from. I mean, as you know, well, I mean, you know, in in war games, talking about um, you know being free from commercial considerations is again yeah. kind of relative. Uh, but th- this does seem like a game that it's like you know, hell with it. We're we're going to do a Russian Civil War game because that's cool, and you know, let's see what happens. And what I can tell is it's very well received. You know, I, I don't hang out too much in, in fan forums, but it's 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 got a good buzz on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so from what I can tell from the reviews I've read and some of the community, yeah. Yeah, that's good, because, I mean, you know, as I was trying to put this show together, it, I, I was a little worried because, at least among, uh, you know, strategy people I know, among writers I know, there were simply not many people who played this or, you know, even heard of it in cases. Uh, so it made it a little tricky, you know, putting together a panel because, you know... It, well, yeah, I mean, I hadn't played much of it. <laughs> so, I mean, and it's a game that I wanted to play, but, you know, I... It came along when there was a million other things to play, and then I changed jobs, and it kind of became less of a priority. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad that PC Gamer is giving you the column room for it, or the the uh, review room for it. I mean, they really uh, stepped up a notch in their strategy game coverage, and I'm glad it's getting something out there. I'm not going to ask what score you gave it, because that's not important. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I gave it a, I gave it a positive but measured review, um, yeah. and, a, and a big part of a big part of you know uh, my review is actually the novelty of the setting. Uh, there, there was one thing I wanted to ask you, Scott. Sure. Explain to me how combat trains work, because I'm playing with these things. You're and talking about armored trains. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. I mean, you have guns mounted on railway cars that run down the railroad and shoot at people. I mean, that's basically, if you think about the, if you think about it like naval warfare, that's probably the best way to look at it. Yeah, I'm pushing these units around the map. So if my soldiers stay away from the railway tracks, they're not going to get shot at by a train. This is what I'm wondering, right? Well, yes, exactly. But why, why not leave? Because you may notice that most of the cities are on railway tracks. That is true. This is this is one war game where there doesn't seem to be much real road network. Uh, well, I mean that was what that was what functional railway served, and you know, a fortified rail uh, fortified rail system was how basically naval warfare for on land. That still strikes as a super dumb idea. If the trains don't run on time. You're never get your train there. But when they do, you're ready. Yeah, you've got a gun. Well, I mean, it was very much a unique period of history uh, for many reasons. I mean, not yeah. only did you have, you know, uh, armored armored railways being, you know, a significant, you know, part of the war. You also, this was really, in many ways, the last gasp of cavalry. I mean, cavalry was a significant part of the war for, you know, the, the one of the reasons why the whites came very very close to winning at one point was simply because they had cavalry and the reds didn't because of it was seen as a very class based thing. I mean the nobility had horses, the peasants didn't. So it, you know there wasn't a whole lot of interest on the communist side 
to uh, build up a cavalry corps until, you know, the whites pretty much thrashed them over and over again with it until Trotsky finally literally said, you know, proletariat to horse, we're going to get our own cavalry. And they did, and they started winning the war. So, so did, the, did the whites use uh, armored trains as much? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, you, you, you know, the Czech Legion was basically trying to get home on site, you know, from, you know, the long way through Siberia on an armored train. And they just happened to be taking over cities for the whites on their way home. Did, did they make it out? Eventually. Okay. Yeah, because that's, that's actually something that's, that's going on in, in my game right now, is I've got the, the Czech Legion has apparently turned on the Bolsheviks and is... Well, yeah, because, you know, they, they historically, they started out, they were prisoners of war, they wanted to go home. And because the Germans, you know, had, you know, had effectively won the war in the East by that time, the only way they were going to get home was, you know, because they were, you know, revolting against the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time, the only way they were going to get home was through the Allies, which was going the other way around the world, through Siberia. So, have you guys uh, had a chance to play any of the non- um you know, Bolshevik white scenarios, uh, some of the Polish or Finnish? No, I want to try a Polish scenario because the Polish war is actually kind of cool. Yeah, you know, I've, been, I've enjoyed both the, um, I, I mean, I don't know, you, the, the wars of independence scenarios, I guess you might call them, although that's not quite what the Polish war is. Um, but one, one of the things I really enjoy about this game is, you know, I, I kind of get fatigued with gigantic scenarios where I've got a choice between, like, little starter scenarios, you know, bite-sized for tutorial purposes, and then massive grand campaigns. And I was Hello, really... East. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was really relieved to see this game had really kind of had a scenario or two for pretty much every level of commitment I wanted. You know, and and one of, one of the things I really enjoyed is playing these, you know, quick, like, you know, play them inside a day or inside a sitting uh, scenarios, playing as the uh, Finns or or the Poles, uh, and it's just it's interesting also like how different how different those wars are from the one you're fighting uh, as the Bolsheviks against the Whites or vice versa, um, where these feel like well, it feels like you've got you've got much more to work with, like things are just running a little bit better. Well, I mean, Poland wasn't a failed state like Russia was at that point. Right now. When when Poland is in, in, is invading the Ukraine is, you know again the the timeline has has the have the Bolsheviks gotten things straightened out or no actually it was really interesting uh, the 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 way the timing worked out was you had the you had the first phase of the civil war which was 1918-1919, which is the whites getting organized and marching on Moscow from three sides and eventually getting fought off you know, in large part due to the whole raising cavalry thing that I alluded to before. I mean, they, at one point, there was an army marching on Leningrad. There were two, the army marching on Moscow from Siberia and an army marching on Moscow from the, the Caucasus in the south. And the uh, Reds managed to fight all of them off. And then we're getting ready to finish off the uh, remaining white forces, uh, which were pretty much just bottled up in the Crimea at that point, at which point Poland invaded. And the the uh, Reds at that point pretty much pivoted on their axis and said, "Okay, well we're going to go, you know, kick the Poles out of the Ukraine, and oh by the way, we're also going to liberate Poland and quite possibly all of Europe for the greater glory of communism." Uh, they eventually got stopped at the Battle of Warsaw, 
And But in the meantime, that gave the Wrangle and the Whites in the Crimea about a year's worth of breathing room to build up a tidy little fortress, which the Reds finally eventually threw them out of in 1920. But there was about a year that the Poles bought, you know, extended civil war by invading in the middle of it, basically. Yeah, so so in the Polish scenario, I kind of feel like, you know, I'm I'm reenacting like a mini Barbarossa with with kind of mm-hmm. a scratch force, um, yep. where you're you're kind of you know you're you're probing deeper and deeper, and the and the Reds don't have much, uh, and then I mean when when they finally show up, I mean it's an avalanche. Well, yeah, I mean you basically in MMO terms you tried to PK someone who was on a pole. Yeah, <laughs> that's literally what Poland did. Yeah, so I mean, that, that's an interesting scenario. I think it's a little more familiar to people who've done a lot of, uh, you know, like World War II game. It's just it's a lot of this is terrain you know well. You're just kind of seeing it from a different angle because of the differences in era and you know just who's fighting. Uh, and then I gotta say that the, the Finland scenario was was really cool because uh, the way where you're fighting in Finland and the way Finland is broken up by you know all these lakes and these little you know forest roads. You know, I mean, the the only way I can, the only comparison I can really make is it's like an army deathmatch map in a shooter, hmm. where it's all like these intersections and there's all these ways to get around behind somebody or sidestep somebody, and it just becomes this sort of really fast-paced hunt through this maze, um, where you try to you know bring these little detachment, you know, you try to get the enemy's detachments alone in the woods somewhere and just pummel them. Uh, but without opening yourself up for the concentrated, you know, blow from the enemy, uh, you don't want to pitch battle. You want to sort of pick them off um, in these, you know, in these roads. You know, it's just it's an interesting scenario. And I, you know, as we move to wrapping it up here, uh, you know, it, it really kind of typifies, you know, a lot of the things I enjoy about this game is there's just a lot of there's just a lot of experiences here that other war games don't give me. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of vignettes here that's really unlike a lot of other things I've played in war games. And that goes a long way to overcoming my reservations about, you know, I mean, the game's, you know, playability, uh, the interface. Um, you know, the fresh setting really carries me past all that. I mean, it's, you know, just talking about it has motivated me to, you know, pick it up and give it up and give it another try. I mean, I'm glad that I bought it just to support, you know, the fact that someone actually did a game on this subject, if nothing else. You know, whether or not I can actually delve in and play, it would be a bonus. But definitely, you know, uh, you know, you know, games getting out of the whole, you know, World War II rut, the whole, you know, American Civil War rut, what have you, I mean, really, really deserve support, I think. I mean, we, we, there's so much of history that has not been mined up to this point that I've Really, as you can see from this, you know, from just our brief discussion, really, really, there's a lot of room for some really interesting games out there. All right, so that about does it for our show. Um, I'd like to thank you for listening, and thanks, Scott, for coming on, and thank Michael Hermes for uh, producing for producing the episode. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it was just you know, it's it's a blast to you know be on, be on a three MA where we're talking about. A completely new frontier, a uh, completely new setting, and it's something I definitely like to see more of. And I, you know, at the very least, I kind of hope that uh, you know the existence of a game like Revolution Under Siege will inspire like other developers to go look at this era, look at the setting, and see what else you can do with it. See, you know, see if you can make that uh, 
you know political game that that Scott would like to see if you know if we'd see if we'd see that game or if we could see a war game that somehow it shows me how the hell an armored train can function on a battlefield without people just running away from it uh, i would i would like to <laughs> I, mean, I kind of want to see that well, my next I mean, total war I, game or something i think you're missing the whole point of the railroad tracks going to where you want to be <laughs> I mean, yes, if you want to rob a bank and you wanted to avoid the bank being robbed, you could go out in a field somewhere, but then you're not anywhere near the money. Right, but I would contend once the cops show up in their armored train, I wouldn't <laughs> hang out around the tracks shooting it out with them. I think that's that's a logical leap I'm having a hard time making. Uh, but that's that's that'll well, be a topic next week. Why they didn't make it to World War Two. There you go. <laughs> Almost certainly, I think the tank probably outmoded them. Uh, but we'll we'll discuss that in detail next week uh, when our topic is armored trains. Uh, but until then, this is Rob Zachney signing off. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Good night, everyone. <laughs>